Welcome back to the book club. I'm Michael Knowles, and this month we will be reading the most vulgar, bawdy, downright often disgusting book I've ever read, The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, the most popular work of English literature ever. We will be doing that with my dear friend, Catherine Illingworth. Catherine, last time you were here, we were reading Dante together. So That's right. very similar time period, a little bit earlier, but similar time period to Chaucer. That's right. Dante, we were discussing the most elevated, beautiful images that one can possibly imagine, so much so that as I read the final three cantos, Paradiso, I was crying at my desk. That's right. That was not my experience of the Canterbury Tales. I was crying sometimes for different reasons in laughter at how bawdy this book is. Can you maybe give a brief summary of this story? I can try after that introduction. I, so this is the story of a group of people who have gathered together completely by chance because they all want to go on a pilgrimage from the city of Southwark outside of London to Canterbury. And they are staying at an inn together. And as they realize that they're all going to be making this journey together, the host, who's the owner of the inn, invites everybody to help pass the time while they're traveling by telling a story. So he says, everyone tell two stories on the way there, two stories on the way back, and we'll see who can tell the best story. And and wh- whoever tells the best, they win a dinner. But yes, which is he's being a shrewd businessman because he says, then you'll all come back here and dine here again, <laughs> right. and I'll cover the check for one of you. So he's drumming up future business for himself. But that's what's at stake. And so The Canterbury Tales is the collection of some of those stories. Chaucer didn't get around to writing all of them, but the ones he did write, that's what they're doing. And because this is written in the 14th century, Mm -hmm. it's not written in modern English. I have here in my hand a translation Mm -hmm. from Middle English into New English. Mm -hmm. I I do have the original, though, here, just to give you a sense. And I'm going to butcher, not only am I going to butcher the modern land, I'm going to butcher the Middle English, too. But this is what it it sounds like. Okay. When that April with his surest sorter, the rota march hath pursed to the rota, and bathed every vein in swish liqueur, of which virtu engendered is the fluor. When Zephyrus eke with... Okay, that's you get get the point. (laughs) I do. You did that you have to have a lot of fun with Middle <laughs> English, and I don't think anyone has had more fun reading a line of Thank Middle you. English than what you I have lacked done. in precision. I feel I made up for an enthusiasm. <laughs> it's the feel that <laughs> you communicated impeccably. So it's it's written now in the 14th century. This mm-hmm. is post Dante. That's now right. there's another figure that follows Dante, who's a big admirer of Dante's, and who actually gives the Divine Comedy its title, Divine, and, mm-hmm. and that is Boccaccio. Yes, and Boccaccio. Mm-hmm. I had never read the Canterbury Tales before this episode. Okay. I I admit with shame. (laughs) But I had read the Decameron, which as I read this, I thought, Mm -hmm. wait a second. This reminds me of an Italian story that has pretty much the same framework. Exactly. That's a great way to talk about the way the Canterbury Tales is set up and it's framed. So, um, yeah, so Dante, the fictional narrative of the Divine Comedy takes place in the year 1300. Dante dies in 1321. And then Boccaccio is the one of the first scholars of Dante who sort of interprets and disseminates comments on Dante and writes, and, you know, Boccaccio's main work, The Decameron, is a group of people who, people are dying right and left of the plague in the city, and so it's this sort of group of young aristocrats who think, we have to get out of here. And as we are sort of seeking refuge from this horrible life-threatening disease, we're going to tell stories to each other to pass the time. And that is very similar, people entertaining each other, you know, and even Beyond, in addition to this frame narrative, Chaucer also actually just 
flat out rewrites some of the stories that Boccaccio includes in the Decameron. So why is the work considered so great? Because as as we're describing it and, and joking, but I think rightly joking about it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of body jokes. Some Some of the stories have some profundity to them, but some are just kind of wacky and silly and farcical. And so why is it considered so great? And why is it the most popular work of English literature? That's a a great question. And I think that we have an impulse as readers to, and this goes back for centuries, if not millennia, to really value tragedy as the worthy form, the word, the, the way of treating serious topics, you know, even like the Shakespearean tragedies are the ones that are like the, the serious works and the funny ones are silly. And I think that um, Chaucer in this work, like many other medieval writers and even going back to antiquity, want to resist that impulse that we all have a little bit, that you can actually contain an extraordinary amount of truth in comedy. And you can treat things of extreme seriousness and solemnity with jokes. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, that pops up in different ways across different cultures in literature and in different traditions. But there's just something about, if you think about British humor and about the, the British bearing, you know, there's a it's it's distinct, you know, and and I think that that is one of the great legacies that Chaucer sort of imprinted on the literary tradition in the UK is that uh, you can treat very serious, important things with jokes. And often the most important points he has to make in the tales he tells are encapsulated within the jokes. Right. And certain tales will be much more serious. Right. And mm-hmm. and you you realize when he's giving these serious tales that mm-hmm. this man is really capable of so many different voices all of these sound like different people because different people are telling them yes. and he's extremely learned yes yes and he wants you to know that he is <laughs> making no mistake that he has read everything he is very... he's read everything yes. about everything yes and is is extremely capable across multiple languages classical languages other contemporary languages and we should talk a little bit about Chaucer's life because it's it's extraordinary both in his life itself and how much we know about it we have almost 500 records of Chaucer's life and we have uh, maybe a handful of Shakespeare's. I mean, we know significantly more about Chaucer than we do about almost any other writer of his time. And most of the major medieval poets of his age, we don't even have names for them. Hmm. You know, they're these anonymous writers of morality plays and, the, you know, different works of literature that just aren't attributed to anybody. And that is the case with Chaucer because he is he was the son of a wine merchant who worked in sort of the import-export business, but then made his way from that merchant class into the aristocracy and was actually a courtier. And so ran in those circles, but held all of these positions throughout his life that where he was managing estates for the court, essentially. And so because he was working in all of these official government capacities that we just have records of almost everything Mm. he did, at least on a professional basis. So that shows us that, you know, we know that he encountered 
all kinds of people. If he's managing estates, mm. that means he's working with, you know, workmen and attorneys and the field laborers, and then obviously encountering a lot of religious personnel of his time and can really sense, because he sort of climbed from a, a lower station to a higher one, that everybody else who's also trying to make that turn and he knows what the aristocracy values about itself and the, the importance that they feel they have for society. I mean, he just, he has seen it all. Mm. And that is what enables him to write about this astonishing and I would say almost unparalleled diversity of characters. All right, so let's get into this diversity of characters right. and these, these stories. I suppose we should begin with the prologue. Yes, great idea. So the prologue is how we, it sets up the stage for us and tells us you know, what we know about our host, Mr. Harry Bailey, who's one of the few characters who really has a name. And we know about the pilgrimage journey that they're all taking. And we also get little portraits of every character that's included. And he includes the, the funniest details. So on, on one hand, he does maybe what anybody would do in that position where he says, this person holds this job and therefore they have these qualities. So there's one, there's a knight and all of his qualities are knightly. But then that sort of perfect packaging starts to devolve a little bit and you think like, all right, this person of dubious character speaks with a lisp and maybe is wearing something they shouldn't be wearing and has this relative or this life experience. So he's bringing in a, he's wanting to paint these people as individual human beings, you know, beyond their just portraying their station in life. And, and that gets more and more complex as he goes along. So you mentioned the knight. Yes. The knight. Is, is, is the first one up. He is, And he yes. tells The Knight's Tale. Yes. Mm -hmm. The Knight's Tale is a great place to begin because it, he resists maybe the introduction you gave of the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I started to read The Knight's Tale, I thought, oh, this is very nice. Yes, what a oh. nice a book for nice people mm -hmm. to yes. learn how to be good citizens and sort of live by a, a structured code that will make society better. This is very uplifting. Because the, the story is about... These these two poor guys, they mm -hmm. get conquered by Theseus, yes. who who runs Athens, mm -hmm. and Theseus throws them into prison. And it's Palamon and Arcite. Mm -hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Arcite? Arcite. Arcite. I like Arcite. It's yes. more exotic. <laughs> so should I put the... Arcite. The, you can Arcite, do it. The, yeah. yes. Arcite. Yeah. I don't, well, maybe I'll leave the Middle English. <laughs> so you've got these two guys, Palamon and Arcite, and they look out the window of the jail cells and they see Emily, mm -hmm. beautiful Emily, and they fall madly in love with her just by the very sight of her. Mm -hmm. And they have no hope of ever being with her because they're locked up in jail forever, mm -hmm. but they can, they can look on her. And then they get sprung from the clink, and that mm -hmm. is where things start to go awry. Yes. Right. And so now all of a sudden you have two dear friends who both are not only loyal to each other, but are both very committed to the chivalric code. Mm -hmm. And that is, we all kind of have a sense about what chivalry is. You know, it's when we usually speak about it in terms of, you know, opening a door for a lady or being respectful of your elders, those kinds of chivalric gestures. But it also, in medieval literature, ties in with with a, a much wider set of expectations and rules that govern behavior. It means you should be brave. You should always be on a quest. You should be loyal to your lord. And then it's also uh, very much entangled with the sort of courtly love tradition that had been popular in medieval literature now for a couple hundred years before Chaucer's writing about it. But um, it, it's very much sort of pivots around longing, hmm. but longing for without satisfaction ever truly being realized. I mean, Dante 
we spoke last time is just in a state of longing for this entire very, very long poem, you know, and it's the degree to which he is sort of satisfied at the end is is complicated. And when you have these two knights in the knight's tale that are experiencing this, you know, they see this beautiful woman and she's picking flowers, which is something that always seems to happen in medieval literature. It's like men can, like can't deal with like the hotness of a woman picking flowers. I and, feel seen. Yeah. <laughs> I feel understood. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so when they when they suddenly have like the the barrier to their you know being able to pursue Emily is suddenly removed, then it creates conflict of wow, how do these structures that govern our lives, the chivalric code, how are we going to maintain our integrity and our devotion to that while also going after this object of our desire, which is kind of what we as knights are engineered to do. And, and when the, the first of the two men to be sprung is Arcite, mm-hmm. and he's sprung from the clink. You think he should be happy, but he's not happy because the deal that he struck was you got to get out of Athens. Mm -hmm. As long as you get out of Athens, I'm not going to kill you. Right. But his love is in Athens. So Mm -hmm. he's, he goes away, but then he does the the only thing he cares about, he he doesn't get. So he's miserable. Mm -hmm. And then Palamon is stuck in the clink, Mm -hmm. but, at least he gets to look out for a little bit every day and see his love. So is he better off? Is Arcite better off? But then Palamon sneaks out of jail. Yes, by drugging his jailer. Yes. yes. And so we have a something that also shows up a lot in medieval literature, which is a disguise. <laughs> you know, and so then his he finds a way to be near Emily by disguising himself as a sort of member of her household, and so he can be near to her. But they can't keep this up for long. They can't keep it up for long. They meet in a field. Mm-hmm. And then that field turns into the field of battle. Yes. And Theseus <laughs> sort of sets it up and he says, okay, guys, I could kill you right now because y- you you both broke the deal. Right, yes. <laughs> but but uh, I'm, I'm going to let you hash it out. And so they amass armies, yes. <laughs> basically. Right, and, and Theseus also builds an arena yeah. for this. So we have this sort of physical space of the tower that mm-hmm. they've been locked in. And now there's this new, confined to this new physical space of the arena that's been constructed for this. So it's it's this, this tale is really wanting us to see that there we have containers for what happens in society. Hmm. We have rules that govern our behavior. We have buildings that, you know, provide spaces for our conflicts. We have, we know how to handle things in this world. And in that conflict, someone, someone dies. Yes. And, but first we have a moment of prayer. We have three different Hmm. prayers that go to three different deities. We have one knight that prays to uh, for victory, one that pays for sort of satisfaction and love, and then sweet Emily, who is not really getting a lot of agency here. She's praying to Diana, and she says, oh, I would <laughs> love to maintain my virginity because this is not great for me. Yeah. I don't know these people, but if I do have to marry, at least let it be for love. And so then, you know, this big conflict ensues, and then at one point, we ha- you know, there's the war even breaks out in heaven, and the gods are all in on it. And then you have sort of experienced Saturn, who has seen these things before and is not squeamish about getting involved in conflict. Mm-hmm. He sort of opens the heavens and, and brings a conclusion to this, which is basically we have one who is wounded and then a victor. But then that victor, suddenly there's an earthquake. So he then falls from his horse and then he's actually the one who ends up dying. And so he's able to give permission to his friend to go and marry Emily. So you have everybody's prayers have kind of been answered where he gets to, we have a victor in love, a victor in war, and yet they both are failures in those counterparts as well. And then Emily also ends up with somebody who actually really does love her. And so it's kind of a 
maybe things are satisfied, but it's also just very tragic. Mm-hmm. And and so it's not the traditional sort of happy ending that we would expect normally from a romance because right. it's really, there's a lot of death. Though, though it is somewhat funny, at mm-hmm. least I found it funny, <laughs> when you get to the end, Palamon is wounded. And we know, we know that Palamon is going to win. That's sort of yes. been preordained. But it looks like he's, he's wounded. And then there's Arcite trotting around on his horse, taking a victory lap, and then he just yes. falls <laughs> off and right on top of his head. And he's... Oh no! Yes, about to I'm, die. <laughs> yeah, and that is something that is really jarring when we read medieval texts, especially of this genre, because all of a sudden there's like there's this wheel of fortune that is constantly yeah. turning, and that shows up in tale after tale in Chaucer that the plot points are not motivated by rational progressions of events. You right. know, the way it's like if you compare. The way that stories are told in, like, when the novel emerges as a literary format and, you know, several centuries later, that really reaches its peak in, like, the sort of Victorian era and slightly before that. You know, you have, you really are trying to understand what the effects of our actions are and how things churn and move forward in rational ways. That is not a priority yet in literature. And so you can have things like, wow, there's all of this buildup to who's going to win, but then there's an earthquake and... (laughs) The wheel of fortune flips, and then uh, then there, here's the outcome. Wow, who knew? You know, and so it makes everything feel a little bit absurd. Yeah. And so as the reader, you think like you feel maybe even a little bit tricked. Like mm. I was invested in yeah. how these actions were going to lead to consequences, but we don't often get that satisfaction in the romance genre. And still, this this symbol, which is a, a really central theme throughout the whole book, mm-hmm. this the wheel of fortune. Yes. I think does describe life in, in in a pretty accurate way. I sometimes think these days people are always citing statistics yes. and data, and I think I don't think those are real. I believe in the goddess Fortuna. Yeah. I think that actually <laughs> she will allow me to understand the world better than th- this idea that everything is perfectly rational and just constantly progresses as you predict that it will. That's you know what's the old uh, Yiddish line: Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. There's a lot of strange accents in this episode, but it means... I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Who would translate for me? What what that means is man plans and God laughs. Right. And that's that's what happens. Uh And so we we arrive at the end and it's a nice, pretty tale. Beautiful, maybe. Right. And then we have the Miller's Tale, which is not pretty. (laughs) I know. You're very eager to get to this. I am. Because we're about to maybe fall into a bit of a crevasse here. We are. Yes. Because what's strange about the Miller's Tale, mm-hmm. told by the Miller, the guy mm-hmm. who just grounds up the grain, yes, is that it is a kind of a retelling yes. of the Knight's Tale. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman who is beloved of two men. Yes. And she's actually married to another guy. And so the whole story is about cuckoldry. Yes. The, the word cuckoldry, which in modern days has become a, a more popular slur against uh, one's political opponents, but it's but it's one of the oldest slurs in the English language. <laughs> yes. The Italians use it all the time, but it's all about cuckoldry, which yes. is, you know, the, the the poor husband, his wife is stepping out on him. Right. And in the case of the Miller's Tale, this woman, Allison, mm-hmm. uh, wants to sleep with her young lover, Nicholas. Mm-hmm. But her husband, John, he's, he's around. He's kind of a jealous guy. And so they got to figure out exactly the right time to do it. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other clerk over at the church, Absalom. And, and he also wants Allison. And Allison, she doesn't like Absalom. You know, mm-hmm. Out of sight, out of mind is, right. is a point that, that 
uh, Chaucer makes. And this young guy, Nicholas, he's living with them, actually, sort of mm-hmm. renting a room from them. Mm-hmm. And so how do they arrange to have their escapade? There is, it's all trickery and deceit that depends on these characters being the most gullible people who have ever lived. <laughs> I mean, it is, we, talk, we talked about in The Knight's Tale about how there is a sort of standard of perfection, you know, that this is nothing like real life because this is not how people actually behave and this yeah. is not what governs, you know, human decisions. But things are just as unbelievable and outrageous in The Miller's Tale. This is a really important point. Because I think there's an inclination in our modern age to mm-hmm. say anything that looks up to an ideal, that's mm-hmm. absurd. Give right. me a break. Be but real. Any, yes. Be real. But mm-hmm. anything that is base and cynical and scatological, we right. say that's what life really is like. But yes. no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Exactly. Yes. Isn't we, there some middle ground perhaps here? And yes. Sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. Because it's so tempting going, because the way that Chaucer puts these three tales, you know, in succession. We have or the, we have the prologue setting things up, then the knight's tale, which is like, things are, we are Athens. Things are structured, yes. you know. And then after that, you have this, you know, well, I'll tell you a tale about two guys interested in the same gal, you know. And it's, <laughs> and the miller also is, it's like, he, we learn he is so drunk, he cannot sit on his horse. <laughs> and he's described as this big brawny guy who could tear a door off his hinges if he wanted to, you know. And so he's a, as much of a caricature yeah. as the knight is. Um, but that doesn't, hmm. but so he's, he comes in with this premise of saying like, all right, I'm going to be real with you. And he even says like, I can't handle this like knight's tale stuff. This is too much for me. And so it's what, as you said, it's tempting us to think like, all right, now we're going to get the real. What is it really like when two men are in love with the same woman? But then it's not like this. I'll tell you what it's like (laughs) when two men are in love with the same woman. So... Nicholas and Allison figure out how to have their little rendezvous. They take care of John, basically by telling him that Nicholas says, I've had this vision from God has told me there's going to be another flood. You got to go get some provisions and we're going to have little boats and you got to basically get out of my way because in a few days it's all going to end. But you, me and your wife, we're going to we're going to make it. Yes. But you got to go away so I can sleep with your wife. And so they take care of the carpenter and and Nicholas and Allison are having fun, and Absalom comes up, and he says, please, I want a kiss. Give me a kiss. She goes, go away. I don't want to talk to you. He goes, no, please, give me a kiss. And so she says, okay, fine. Come on over here. You can get a kiss. Absalom started wiping his mouth dry. Dark was the night as pitch, as black as coal. And at the window, out she put her hole, and Absalom, so fortune framed the farce, put up his mouth and kissed her naked arse most savorously before he knew of this. And back he started. Something was amiss. He knew quite well a woman has no beard, yet something rough and hairy had appeared. What have I done? He said. Can that be you? Teehee, she cried <laughs> and clapped the window too. And then not, not to be outdone, he decides, to, she says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You can come back, you can get a kiss now. And so Nicholas decides he's going to have fun too. And so he's the lover and he's going to stick his derriere out there. And um, so Absalom was ready. He's all set to make a launch. Speak, pretty bird. I know not where thou art. This Nicholas at once let fly a fart, as loud as if it were a thunderclap. He was near blinded by the blast. <laughs> Poor chap. Indeed. Poor chap. That, that is, that is <laughs> the most 
disgusting thing I've ever said in public, <laughs> certainly on camera. But I, I, I do feel it is necessary to understand just how gross this story gets. Yes. Yes. I think that that, that, that is, there is a kind of anatomical specificity <laughs> that we are not making... He's implying nothing. He's leaving nothing to the imagination here. He's going to tell us exactly which body parts we're dealing with and and tells us in the, you know, in the beginning to this, like, you may want to skip this (laughs) to save your dignity, which you chose not to do here today. Yes, I chose For the benefit of your viewership. For the benefit? I don't know. (laughs) Speaking of the sort of funny way that human beings work, Mm -hmm. you then get to one of the most famous tales in in the Canterbury Tales, which mm-hmm. is the wife of Bath story. Yes, yes. And she is oh, probably the most famous, I would say, along with maybe the partner, the most famous character that mm. Chaucer invents. And she becomes, has sort of a, takes on a personality as like this fictional character that people all recognized in Chaucer's time. Like the people love the wife of Bath. And so what we learn about her, her portrait, is that she's been married five times. She's been with many people, even in an, outside of that. She works in the sort of textile trade, which is the most lucrative business to be in in this time period. But she also, the fact that she's had five husbands means that she's gotten very good at marrying old guys yeah. and then inheriting their wealth. And so she's created quite a position for herself in society in spite of the fact that she is breaking every rule <laughs> that we especially when we look back at the middle ages think mattered then right you know and so because she is not sorry yeah. or apologetic about anything she's a nasty woman she, <laughs> yes she <laughs> never heard anyone say that about the wife of that but <laughs> sh- sure yes she is <laughs> she is is who she is without yeah. any shame mm-hmm. at all and people love her for it, you know, which is is funny because she is really breaking all of these conventions, and yet her something about her is just so appealing, hmm. you know, her confidence with it, right. you know. And then the tale that she tells us, you know, because we're we're learning all the things we've talked about so far. Marriage is is a pretty big topic, you yeah. know, because it's again one of those things that gives structure to society. It relates to love and longing, which is related to the chivalric motivation. And and, and it's a confounding issue. I mean, specifically for her, yes. she talks about all her husbands. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, this really nice guy. Yeah, I took him for all he was worth. And this yes. this other wonderful, kind, gentle man. Oh, yeah, him, I was a devil to him. I just <laughs> ruined his life. And, you know, the only one I really liked was the guy who just viciously beat me. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yes, exactly. And it's a, so she's been through a lot (laughs) and put other people through a lot, you know, in this sort of, as this marriage convention has sort of ruled her, the happenings of her life. So when we get to hear her tale, I mean, and this is something that's so interesting about reading the Canterbury Tales, we could spend our whole time today talking about the way that this is structured, because you're constantly going back from portrait of the storyteller to the story that they tell. And, you know, those are equal fictions. And and so you're always, the voice is always changing. You know, when we read Dante, you have one person who's conversing with hundreds of people yeah. as he's on a linear trajectory to go one place. Here, that the mic is being passed constantly, mm. yeah. and they even steal it from each other, like mm. the characters are interacting. And so it's that's why the Canterbury Tales kind of resists a, what is Chaucer saying? Yeah. You know, it's really hard to get there. But 
one of the things that the wife of Bath is saying, because her tale is basically, this, just to summarize it, the story of a knight who rapes a young maiden, which is a crime punishable by death. And then the queen who is supposed to sentence him says, all right, I will give you an opportunity to survive. And you have exactly one year to tell me what women want. <laughs> So then he goes around looking for this answer, and finally, there's this kind of old, ugly hag of a woman who, in the the 11th hour, can tell him, she says, I can tell you the answer that'll save your life, but you're going to owe me something. And he's like, okay, great. Whatever you want, lady. Yes, exactly. So she says that what women want is sovereignty over their husbands. So he says, great tells the queen she's like you got it and then he so he's free and then he then has to marry the old hag and so she then tells him that he she, she sort of gives him a, a choice because it's their wedding night and he takes off her veil and she's this like old terrible creature that he does not want to be married to and she goes okay i will transform myself to be young and beautiful forever but i will cheat on you or i can be faithful to you but i'm going to look like this and so he turns to her and he says, well, why don't you choose? And she just, he just answered that exactly right because (laughs) what he has done is given her sovereignty over him. And so then to sort of reward him for this correct answer, this gift of sovereignty, she says, you get both. I'll be beautiful forever and I will be faithful to you. So the old hag who mm -hmm. then becomes this hot young lady and the queen, are they right? Is that what women want? I can't answer. I don't know. But you're you're a woman. <laughs> I would say there's something floating under the surface here, which is mm. that what we're trying to get is possibly a, a picture of mutual submission, mm. because that is what at the end, and that's what really is a, a great successful partnership is two people who are not so much like alternating who gets to rule over who in the, in which moment, but two people who have enough mutual respect that they can actually honor one another's wishes and come to productive solutions. And maybe the wife of Bath is touching on that a little bit at the end of her story that, you know, he grants her her will and then he turns around and gives him what he wants. And so there's weirdly, I mean, because this man also is a rapist. Yeah. And which is the, we, I mean, <laughs> kind of is, you forget that yes, if you read the story. Yes. <laughs> and it's the, the whole context of this story is, is horrifying. And yeah. so he, is he being transformed into suddenly a virtuous person who has all mm-hmm. of this respect for women? You know, is that what is happening here? It, it seems to be, he does undergo this transformation, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of at the, in, you know, within being molded by this woman who has kind of magical powers. Right. But, and and so yeah. the, the most magical power of all in the entire book mm-hmm. is the power of speech, right? Th- yes. th- this mm-hmm. is what comes when you just, you're, you're, you're really dazzled when, when you, you watch Chaucer's amazing facility with speech. Mm-hmm. He can speak as anybody mm-hmm. about anything in any tone or register. It's, it's amazing. And by the end of the book or well, it's unfinished. So mm-hmm. the end of what we've got of the book, right? You get a story mm-hmm. about speech. That's right. Yes, this is and this is not a popular tale from within this text. So I'm glad we have the chance to give it a little spotlight today. It's called the nun's priest's tale, and this the nun's priest is somebody that is referenced as being part of the party that's accompanying this nun in the general prologue. But unlike most of the speakers, he doesn't have a really distinct portrait. So we don't know a lot about who's telling us this story. But he launches, Chaucer takes us launching into this sort of a like a 
medievalists called them beasts. It's like an animal fable, a beast fable. Have you ever heard of like a medieval bestiary? I think that the people in the Middle Ages really looked to animals, both in artwork, and you've probably seen pictures of medieval marginalia of like silly rabbits and things like that. Animals add a sort of an underpinning of immutable nature. Hmm. We learn, and I mean that in sort of a natural law sense, because right. animal nature is, seems to be a lot more static than human nature. You know, that like kinds of people don't always behave as their kind, but kinds of animals generally do. Right. Animals don't have a rational soul yes. and will. So right. they're, they're not uh, constantly evolving and growing. And, yes. you know, a, a rabbit's a rabbit. Right. Exactly. And, you know, if you have that sort of this Aristotelian like hierarchy of the souls, you have your vegetable soul and animal soul and then intellectual soul. And so this is the sort of it has a will. Animals have a will, but they don't have language, essentially. So animals provide a sense of stability, narrative and um, stability of significance, I guess, um, that allow us to question whether the things that happen are happening be as a consequence of natural law or just of this wheel of fortune, fate, <laughs> circumstance that we were kind of talking about earlier. So this is a story that is... Um, it's a barnyard tale of this rooster named Chanticleer. Mm -hmm. um, and he is kind of wooing his wife, who is also one of his sisters, because that's how it works if you're in the chicken family. Fair you know? enough. Yes. <laughs> so there's all these hens, but he has this sort of moment of wooing. And he's a sophisticated and educated rooster. And so he um, is sort of quoting, translating things from Latin for her, you know, as he speaks. But he has a couple moments of mistranslation <laughs> in the beginning where he is so confident in his learning that we don't really pay much attention to it unless you sit there and realize, like, everything that he's saying is not really from these original Latin source texts. He's saying that, you know, women are the best thing that ever happened to men, but that's not what his source texts are saying. So he's a little bit unreliable. But the big action of this is that a fox breaks into the far the farmyard. And so there's a moment where Chanticleer the rooster finds himself in the mouth of the fox. Right. And as the fox is sprinting across this barnyard, all the hens are and all the animals are just scattered everywhere. And Chaucer compares this to the scene at the fall of Troy. <laughs> that there is that this is so dramatic and such a big event happening that uh, you know it's exactly like the poor women who are know that the, you know society is over and the, mo the greatest <laughs> tragedy in all of literature, you know. And um, it's just the hen house is being invaded by a fox. Yes, which is so silly to think about these hens, <laughs> you know, being have anything to do with Troy, you know, until he adds a couple of details that say that, you know, the woman who actually owns this farm is this poor widow. So she has no income other hmm. than this farm. And it's her, it's her entire survival depends on them. So the fact that her rooster is in the mouth of a fox is actually kind of life-threatening for this woman. Hmm. And so it adds this level of seriousness that's very, very off to the side of the scene, you know, while this silly barnyard scene is unfolding. Right. Um, but what the, the rooster is able to save himself by tricking the fox into speaking. Yep. And as he tricks him into speaking, he opens his mouth to talk, and that's what makes that he drops the rooster to the ground, and the rooster can then and, escape. And in fact, the fox only was able to get the rooster by tricking the rooster into speaking. Yes, By right. saying, oh, Chanticleer, please sing out one of those beautiful songs. Oh, yeah, me? I used to love it when your dad would sing. And everything. So <laughs> yes. please just sing out this beautiful song. And as the rooster goes to sing, mm -hmm. he st stretches out his neck, and the fox can chomp down on the neck, drag him off to the woods. And so you, yes. you see the same tool here, and the mm -hmm. rooster goes up in a tree. Yes. 
Right. And then the fox, what does the fox say? The fox says, hey, sorry about that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what came over me. Well, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I'm not usually like this. Yeah. You want to come down, maybe? And the end of the... Rooster says to, to um, invoke a beautiful line from George W. Bush. Basically, fool me once, shame on you. Yeah. Fool me twice. Um, um, the point is, you're not going to fool me again. Yeah. No. So loose translation. Yes. Yes. Chaucer. That's a perfect description of mm-hmm. his response. Um, so what we have really unfolding here is that rhetoric is where all the power lies. You know, it's when people traditionally think about speech. There's rhetoric sort of gets thrown into this like. I don't know about rhetoric. Rhetoric is how you manipulate and how yes. you lie. And you can make people do things they don't want to do and create false impressions of reality. If you're a great rhetorician, it kind of means you're up to mischief and a trickster. But then there's these other kinds of speech that are performative. Like the, the most famous example, I guess, would be like a wedding vow. That when you say, you know, do you take this woman... You know, it's the the I do's actually like enact the sacrament of marriage. And yeah. so that speech can actually work in that way. But I think that what... Um, some scholars that I admire who work on this have made the observation that this tale is kind of, and the Canterbury Tales as a whole, are kind of telling us that all speech is action. You know, that it is even the rhetoric kind is leading, it's changing reality. It's, it has consequences and it, it leads people to, you know, the rise and fall all the time. And so speech is, is really what humanity is turning around. It's not just idle chatter. And it's easy to yes. think of these people are just passing the time and playing a game for a dinner, but it's right. it's not just idle chatter. Exactly. It's actually from the silliest, m- most vulgar tale to the most serious religious tale. And there are right. many tales we didn't have time to get to. Right. They're, they're doing something. They're taking us on a journey, could be taking us on a pilgrimage. Right. Yes, exactly. And that the pilgrimage is, you know, so critical to keep in mind because after the introduction, they only mention pilgrimage one more time in this whole story. <laughs> and but it's there all the time. And you have this, they're going to see the relics of the martyred Thomas Beckett. And Canterbury is so critical because he was martyred in the cathedral, you yeah. know, where his relics are actually enshrined now. And so it's that sort of darkness and holiness and somberness really undergirds this whole thing. And so even though we are making jokes and, you know, use talking about things that people wouldn't maybe normally talk about on a pilgrimage, that this is all part of human life as we strive for those things that are sanctifying, that are reliable, these things that order society in in ways that are reliable, gives structure. There's this prime mover who is allowing us to live in a way that sort of gives structure to to interior life, what we think about within ourselves, and then gives structure to the principles that govern society. And sometimes it's left unfinished. It is. Sometimes the wheel of fortune spins such that you don't get to finish. And uh, we we can ponder that (laughs) on, on our own pilgrimages. Uh, with with all of the bodiness and all of the seriousness and all of the holiness and all of the chicanery and all, all things of that the, are part of human life, all of the things that are part of the human comedy, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Catherine, marvelous as always to have you with us. Wonderful. I look here. forward to the next time you're back. Oh, well, thank you. Until then, I'm Michael Knowles. This is the book club. Thank you so much for watching this episode of the book club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.